market to book value, productivity, profitability, customer satisfaction, even something like patent generation, right? So there's lots of evidence out there. It's important to acknowledge it's correlation, not causation. But there's a lot of, of evidence out there that it matters. And I think it matters in the context of our marketplace too. Welcome back to the Work Inspired Podcast. Today's guest is an accomplished professional. She's got degrees from both Stanford and Harvard. She's worked for companies like McKinsey, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, and Tyson. We're so excited to talk with her today about growth, innovation, diversity, and a whole lot of inspiring things. Welcome Monica McGurk to the show. Let's get started. Thank you so much for being on the Work Inspired Podcast. So excited to speak with you today. I'm so excited to be with you, George. Thank you. So you have, I think, an incredible professional story up to this point. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you've got to where you're at today. Sure. Uh, I am a change junkie. Let me start with saying that. very passionate about unlocking the potential of people in the work that I do. Uh, Very passionate advocate for the food system. A lot of my career has been focused in the food and beverage industry. And I've had a really interesting path, um, starting out as a consultant, um, as a partner at a, a firm called McKinsey & Company, where I did a mix of work over the time I was there started off doing operations and strategy consulting, and then moved into marketing strategy, founded the innovation practice um, in the consumer sector there in the Americas, and then got really interested about why it was so hard for so many of my clients to repeatedly innovate and sustain that performance, which made me shift into the organization practice, where I did a lot of big transformation programs, leadership development, culture change, and capability building work. Um, from there, I went into a startup in the digital media space and then moved over time from Coca-Cola to Tyson Foods to more recently the Kellogg Company. Um, so different roles, um, strategy, digital, e-commerce, um, commercial leadership as chief growth officer, ran a PL in there. So a lot of diversity, but really all around driving sustainable growth in one of the most important industries in our world, given the need to feed, you know, fast forward a couple decades, nine and a half billion people Mm -hmm. in an increasingly resource constrained world uh, in an industry and sector that's just being set upon every day by a ton of change to the good Mm -hmm. and to the challenging side. Yeah. So you've had, I mean, you've had an experience set that spanned startup all the way to some of the largest companies in the world and in Mm -hmm. an industry that you seem very passionate about and is very important. Um, For you, you are the first guest that we've had on our show that has held the title of chief growth officer. Uh, For listeners who aren't aware as to what that role entails, tell me a little bit about what a chief growth officer does. Sure. It, it's a little bit of a newer role, I think it became in vogue starting five or so years ago. And the easiest way to think about it is for companies that might be struggling 
to bridge silos and to drive change in their portfolio or their capability set to be able to reignite that growth. It's not a band-aid, but it, it's like an igniter mm-hmm. um, to inject into the organization and make those things happen in a way that is complementary and supportive to the day-to-day running and delivery of a business. Uh, so a lot of what I did, like in my last role, um, the kinds of teams that reported to me included R&D and all of the things that typically would go with R&D, um, innovation, nutrition, regulatory, that sort of thing. The CMO with the mandate for portfolio strategy, global brands, marketing capability building and licensing, revenue growth management that thinks about your pricing and promotional strategies and execution, e-commerce of all forms, sales channel, um, and integrated business planning where the supply and demand need to come together, um, increasingly looking forward and anticipating and filling those gaps proactively over multiple time horizons. Um, So it's, it's a very broad remit, but mm-hmm. it's all around empowering the organization to drive sustainable growth, build new capabilities at the same time so that you're positioned for the future and can unlock that potential of your portfolio and your people. Cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're working with a lot of different functions and departments within the organization. You're dealing with change, which we are all experiencing quite a great deal of right now. And uh, you, you mentioned things like innovation and diversity and culture, which are hot topics on this, on this show and in many organizations. So, so excited to dig further. But before we go, we, we go into some of those areas, tell me a little bit about, uh, you're serving currently on a couple different boards, correct? I am, yes. I serve on the board of directors for Mid-America Apartments, which is the largest apartment REIT by apartment count in the United States. And I've been with that board I think around six years. And I recently joined the board of a private company called Pivot Bio, which uses machine learning and gene editing technology to unlock the inherent natural potential of the root balls of crops, basically looking for things in those root balls that will produce nitrogen, which Mm -hmm. enables the crop to produce its own nitrogen in a way that decreases the need for chemical fertilizers, which has all sorts of benefits for water and soil quality, greenhouse gas emissions, um, crop nutrition and performance, ultimately enhancing the incomes of farmers and producing something that's more sustainable for our world. We should have a, a bingo card of hot topics and you're checking off all the boxes. <laughs> There's sustainability. Uh, I, you know, we, I want to talk about some of those other things that are more broad and from some of the other companies you've worked Mm -hmm. with, but we haven't talked a lot about boards and serving on boards uh, on our show before. Uh, Is it something you'd recommend that professionals seriously consider? We've got a lot of executives or aspiring professionals that listen to this Mm -hmm. show. Um, What would be your your advice as per someone who might be interested in exploring uh, serving on a board? Well, I found it really valuable. Uh, and if you're in the public company world mm-hmm. and you're um, exposed to the board, it's helpful to see it from the other side. It, it's very developmental to get that exposure and that experience because you understand 
um, from a different angle, what is the difference between the governance and risk management accountability of a board of directors versus the management accountability of setting the strategy, delivering the results, you know, running the business on a day-to-day basis. Um, and getting that exposure, I think, just broadens your readiness for further executive roles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a lot of fun to take your skills and port them into another situation where they are relevant and helpful and additive. But it is a lot of work. It's a big commitment. Right? Mm-hmm. The responsibilities you have for governance and as a fiduciary are serious. Um, so it's not something to be taken lightly. And it is different. So you've got to kind of wrap your head around the time commitment and the nature of the role and what it takes to be a good board member. But I've really enjoyed it and have learned a lot from it for sure. Very cool. So you've worked with a lot of very impressive, successful companies and have been part of some high performing teams. I'm interested based off of this vast experience set that you've got, have you noticed any consistent trends or characteristics? of successful teams or of companies that are able to consistently innovate or who have strong work cultures? Yeah. So regardless of purpose, um, right there, I think there are some patterns that make for great teams, whether it's an operations team, a team on an innovation project or, um, you know, management team leading an integrated business. And when I talk about a team, I mean, something that's greater than the sum of its parts. You know, some, mm-hmm. some people have had that experience of being managed in a hub and spoke manner where the person who's the team leader is going point to point and they're, they're maybe getting good outcomes, but they're directing an individual by individual basis, as opposed to figuring out the synergy mm-hmm. across the people on that team. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a great team. It's, What's the synergy that makes it able to perform more than and deliver more than what each individual would have been able to do on their yeah. own? Um, and some of the things that I've observed along the way, is first of all, you've got to have alignment right? on what is your purpose? Why do you exist mm-hmm. as a team? What are your goals? What does success look like? And usually that needs to be more than um, a mediocre goal, right? It's, it's got to be inspiring to people, but you have to recognize different people are motivated by different things. And so being able to articulate that purpose in a way that resonates with every single person on the team, but is yet consistent is really, really important. Sure. Um, there's certainly an element of clarity of role and the composition of the team. Um, diversity of skills, experiences, styles, perspectives, if unlocked through inclusive leadership can really drive high performance. There's a lot of value to be gotten there. And recognizing that the composition of a team at one stage and what's appropriate and needed might not be the same two years down the road, three years down the road, being flexible and and flowing your resourcing and the types of people on the team to reflect to your needs is really important. Um, yeah, and, and then it's like interaction and then investing in the team and it's interaction quality. Like, mm. is there good trust? Is there good communication? 
are there healthy ways to deal with conflict? Because conflict will come up in a high-performing team for sure. Um, and then I think ultimately that acid test, you, know, you can take your work seriously, but not take yourself seriously. Can you have mm -hmm. fun together? Sure, Is the mission, yeah. the mission you're on, the hill you're climbing, um, and the experience of getting there together rewarding enough? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. those are, those are some of the things that I think I've observed and experienced and, you know, you can think about a team quite broadly. You've got your, your direct reports as defined by reporting roles and lines on, and boxes on an org chart. And then there's the team that you build as a coalition, um, a team of like-minded people that you can unleash and build that's even greater than what you're technically formally responsible for. Mm -hmm. And I think when you take that view of teaming, there's no limit to what you can do, especially if you don't care who gets the credit, right? Because you all mm -hmm. win together when you're on a team. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's what I was going to say is uh, clear communication, aligned goals, uh, purpose. Mm -hmm. Those things are, I mean, those have been key ingredients to successful uh, results for, for a long time and well-known. And we've talked about those things for, you know, on a number of episodes in this show. What I think is one of the newer parts of the conversation is this uh, idea of the value of diversity and inclusion. And, and you kind of showed both, you, you talked a little bit about the challenge is having everybody rowing, rowing in the same direction and being aligned or like-minded for their goal and purpose, but also making sure that that team consists of a diversity of thinking and people. And I'm interested to know, how do you correlate diversity or inclusion with performance and results or innovation? How do you kind of bring the two together? Yeah, it's a really fantastic question. And I'd start by saying you know, greater minds than mine have talked about mm -hmm. the correlation with performance. There's lots of evidence that diversity is correlated with corporate performance and financial results. Um, just to cite a few, which maybe your listeners are familiar with, you know, McKinsey has done a series of research reports. The latest found, I think, something like 48% profitability differential mm. between the most and the least gender diverse companies in their research set. And a 36% differential between the most ethnically and least ethnically diverse. Hmm. HBR has found similar kind of things, you know, double digit higher profit margins um, with more diverse management teams. Credit Suisse found something. MBER has found something. Catalyst, which is kind of the uh, OG in many respects on diversity, particularly gender diversity has rounded up, I think, something like 39 different metrics, return on sales, return on equity, ROIC, stock growth, market to book value, productivity, profitability, customer satisfaction, even something like patent generation, hmm. right? So there's lots of evidence out there. It's important to acknowledge it's correlation, not causation. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of of evidence out there that it matters. Um, and, and I think it matters in the context of our marketplace too. Um, I would never be 
one to say, hey, you have to be the target market to generate a brand or build a business that's relevant to the target market. Like, I fundamentally don't agree with that. But when you think about you know, the four trillion plus buying power of the more diverse segments of the American population right mm-hmm. now, and that's growing, um, the fact that the highest rates of growth in our population are in the Latino, Asian, Black, mm. Native American mm-hmm. parts of the population. The third of Americans are already in majority minority counties and that 31 of the top 50 most populous metros, which tend to be the higher growth ones, are also already majority non-white. It, it just mm. makes sense. Like the market is diverse, diversity from some of the traditional ways we think about it, gender, ethnicity is really important. And then there are lots of other elements of diversity that we can overlook in running a business if we kind of migrate to the mean. We might not mm-hmm. be thinking about socioeconomic diversity and particularly that um, lower income consumer necessarily uh, when we're thinking about innovation. Mm-hmm. So we might be you know, focused on the more premium type of products at the upper end of the market. We might not be thinking about neurodiversity or even um, the physically challenged market and the aging market, which are huge in and of themselves. So there's a lot of market potential to be tapped with an appreciation for the needs of a diverse consumer. There's a lot of opportunity to connect with them better through communication that speaks to them. And in a business setting, you know, I, I think it was Einstein who said the same intelligence that created a problem can't solve it or something of that nature. Um, and so I, I think about the toughest problems I've ever had. And the only way we've ever gotten to really amazing solutions that solve the problem and also do it in a way that you can still, you know, have a financially viable business is by bringing really radical thinking together. Mm-hmm in the face of really tough constraints. And mm-hmm. that means even just cross-functional diversity to build a good team to tackle a tough problem is incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. The, fl- the flip side though, and you were alluding to it, is generating solutions is different than implementing them. And the more, there is also research, I think from HBR that shows the more diverse teams, when you get to implementation stage of imp- of innovation, they, they can struggle because of the conflict and the like. So you've got to know how to unlock that potential because just putting people who on paper or in person look different or have different yeah. backgrounds, that doesn't work to unlock the value. You, you've got to have ways to work together to make those perspectives come to the forefront and be appreciated mm-hmm. to, and then to be able to work through the cycles of conflict quickly and productively to get to the nuggets without the differences disabling the team from functioning. So much, so much there that you just offered up. I mean, first of all, I think you're completely right as far as diversity needs to be looked at from a variety of different ways, not just in maybe some of the traditional sense. But um, I love the, I love the notion that some of the reasons why all these metrics for measuring success through diversity are so significant, like you just listed, 
some of it is you resonate better with with the available audience for your service or product. The other is the the diverse way of thinking and being able to bring a more complete picture or or creative solutions to a problem. But I but I I love that then you kind of said well well there's it's not all benefits with diversity. There's some challenges and we got to acknowledge these so that we can overcome them or so that we can put in processes yeah. or implement uh, different strategies so that we can we can really maximize the value of the diverse team that we put together. Um, we talk about culture a lot in this show, and I, yeah. I think, uh, is, there any, is there any bridge to, you know, from this conversation to the culture conversation? Because a lot of organizations and a lot of literature or studies show that you should have a really solid core culture at your organization that should be promoted and strengthened and grown. But is there a benefit in a diversity of different subcultures at your company? Because different, you know, different cultures encourage different ways of working and different types of teaming. So I think that the I think that the 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 spotlight that's now on diversity and inclusion, especially if we can include within that conversation things like diverse ways of thinking, not just diversity in race or gender or or geography or socioeconomics. I think that. It, there's a lot of power there. And I think that it's encouraging that there's as many business results uh, tied to it because I, I, I don't think it's something that will fade away. I think that if a lot of companies now are realizing the impact it can have on their bottom line and it'll continue to promote it. So yeah, I, I just think, perspective. yeah, George, I, I would just say, you know, two things to build on, on your comments. One is my hypothesis is the reason that there's that correlation is that the cultures are inclusive and they're able to tap mm -hmm. the, the genius of the talent that they've recruited, right? Talent markets are what they are. And if you have a culture that people can show up in authentically, that doesn't mean that there's no corporate culture, but it's a, mm -hmm. a culture that values them as human beings and gives them a way to contribute with all of their experiences and skill sets. Mm -hmm to solve these tough problems, you're, you're probably a culture that can put tough problems on the table instead of hide them. You're probably a culture that can have a rigorous debate and look at things from multiple ways mm -hmm. that values cross-functional perspectives and forces conflict to actually drive to a better solution. So that's my hypothesis. And I, and I think it's a hallmark of a really strong culture that it can do those things and make that space for people. And it's really a smart way to tap into talent markets. So right now, you know, we've been hearing about the great resignation and the differential impact on different subpopulations of talent um, in the United States and in other parts of the world. If you're an employer and you're not attracting your fair share of the talent, knowing that talent is distributed across population, Mm -hmm. You're missing out, right? Mm -hmm. Someone's going to find the talent that is undervalued in the market and give them an opportunity to shine and game over. So it, it's just a, a very practical reason to also value all those different types of diversity because you're going to be able to win in the talent market a lot, uh, yeah. a lot more easily. Very true. Let's talk about innovation for a minute. You've, you've a lot of uh, your, your roles have kind of focused in that space and and as part of the chief, you know, growth officer uh, role, it's it's been kind of ushering in or being a champion of innovation uh, mm -hmm. for the organizations you've worked for. 
in your opinion, is, is innovation something that's a skill, like an innovative mindset? Is it something that you learn, that you can train for, that you can develop? Or is it more of a personality type? Like, uh, you know, some people are more creative than others. Uh, how, do you, how do you look at or define innovation? It's, in some ways, it's the age-old question. Um, I I don't really subscribe to the um, the myth of the genius, mm. right? Um, that said, one of the things that has shaped my thinking is um, who is probably famous more for his study of flow. You know, that okay. that psychology when you are so in the moment and mm-hmm. everything just seems easy, which is you know, you're between your comfort zone and something that's stretching and engaging you. Um, he did another bit of research on flow and creativity. And um, the way he tackled that research is he looked at people who were considered geniuses in all walks of life. You know, they could have been scientists or artists or dancers, musicians. Um, and, and he looked at patterns that explained what drove their genius and creativity when they truly broke boundaries, you know, like a Picasso creating a whole new way of thinking and, and making art um, or people who just opened up new boundaries in science. Mm-hmm. And it, it's fascinating reading these profiles. I'm going to grossly oversimplify it, but what he found was these people mastered the rules of their discipline. Mm-hmm. And then they planted themselves in these incredibly diverse ecosystems where they were inundated with stimuli, different people from different walks of life, different disciplines, um, you know, places like Lawrence mm-hmm. um, during the Renaissance, right? And it was, it was both things that mattered, the discipline of their of their form, whether it was science or art, with this and a lot of stimulus that caused them to create at this level that we would recognize as genius. And I share that story um, because I think as organizations, we can have processes and disciplines that promote stronger innovation. Um, And that's, innovation, whether it's product package, new business models, new processes, you know, technology, those types of things. Um, and we can do things to stimulate our own creative juices, if you will, but it, mm-hmm. it's not like there's a personality type who's going to come in and save the day. I, I actually think that's kind of like a dangerous model of innovation. <laughs> um, and there are some things that can help organizations be more innovative in general you know one is making sure you're working on problem that's big enough to warrant innovation you know mm-hmm. somebody used to call it shark bite problems but you know things that matter mm-hmm. are things that mm-hmm. you should be innovating on and, and nothing short of that um second would be real insights and sometimes in the space that i'm in where there's a lot of syndicated data and, and research reporting and stuff I think we've become over-reliant on the comfort of hard data mm-hmm. and research reports, which often anybody can buy, yep. right? 
So how do you get proprietary insight? How do you get out in the world with ethnography or anthropology and actually see and get below the surface to get a real deep insight that's going to unlock something new and creative? Recognizing, as many people like um, Steve Jobs would say, like, consumers don't know what they want necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes the best insights are things that are not going to be tip of the tongue feedback from a consumer. Um, there are real processes and disciplines that you can bring to bear. They do need to flex to reflect the level of innovation you're talking about. I'm talking about a huge breakthrough problem. Mm-hmm. And my innovation concept depends on three critical assumptions. Like say one is a technology breakthrough. I probably don't want to follow a standard stages and gate process because that breakthrough might be backloaded gate mm-hmm. four and 80% of my spending is going to be done. And if it's, if that's the make or break thing, let's figure that out first. Mm-hmm. And then we can run hard once we prove to ourselves, yep, we can solve that problem. Right. So you have to have the discipline and clarity on your metrics, sometimes very basic financial viability metrics and, and the like, but flex it to reflect the degree of challenge that you're facing. Mm. And I think teams need to know how things work. Mm-hmm. Some of the coolest innovation that um, I've been a part of, people really dug deep to understand the drivers of PL and they really dug deep to understand like, how do we make stuff today? So they knew how to fiddle and innovate or leverage the asset in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I had a situation a few years ago where there was a real need to pivot to different kind of platform to meet consumers for requirements. And we were working with supply chain on the capital plan. And um, it was one of those, well, we can't spend that much money. It's going to, if we do what you're asking us for, it's going to take us two years. Why don't you just do this other kind of process and then we can get it in six months. Well, that doesn't meet the consumer need, right? So we're having this difficult conversation and this guy on my team, God bless him. was like, well, doesn't this cost and this timetable get driven by this stage of the process at this part of the line? And I said, yep. And he said, well, what happens if we took that out? Because that's not actually the essential part. It's everything that happens before then. And they're like, oh, well, then we can get it to you in seven months and, you know, half the cost. And so it's like, oh, brilliant. We just solved our problem. But it's because we knew mm-hmm. outside of a, you know, a silo how to crack the problem to get to the real need that the consumer was um, in that case, expressing. Um, and then I'd say, you know, the last few things, a lot of really great innovation now depends on ecosystems, bringing in your suppliers, finding a new route to market, a, a different selling model, a way to get to outlets that you might be underpenetrated in. So thinking less about ownership and more about ecosystems and partnering, coopetition is a word some people use. I think can unlock a lot of really positive win-wins in the marketplace. Prototyping to get something mm-hmm. out quickly to learn from and, and optimize instead of holding it back until it's perfect. Because face it, most things are never perfect right mm-hmm. off the right. bat. Um, and just inculcating that spirit of not we can't because, but what would it take to 
or mm-hmm. I can if. And I think that's where a leader really can play a great role is just making sure that the team working on any innovation understands the remit first and foremost, right? Because you can have project drift and end up with something that doesn't nearly meet the needs that you're trying to to address. Mm-hmm. And then help them remove constraints because all of us work in constraints every day and we, mm-hmm. we learn. And, and that way people have permission to think big and to dream and to remove those constraints. And it might not be where you started, mm-hmm. where you end up, but you'll find it by having those more encouraging conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So much great advice there. Um, I want to focus on on one piece of it, and it's that um, kind of going back to the question of is innovation a skill you can learn versus something that you bring as a personality type? And yeah, I think part of your answer was you do need to learn. You, you need to develop yourself into being an expert at something or being able to come to the team with something to contribute. Um, and then there's processes that can be put in place that allow for innovation to be accelerated or be more substantial. And part of it seems to be a little bit about the environment that the team is in. You talked about collaboration. You talk about you know prototyping or or um, really getting in and understanding how things work. Have you noticed? Because obviously over the pandemic, everything was a little bit more well, a lot more remote than it was beforehand. Mm-hmm. But the size of some of the companies that you worked at. My guess is that you were frequently collaborating with cross-functional teams that were not all in the same space. Our company builds out workspaces, so we're constantly looking at you know ways to promote the value of being together. I'm interested to know have you have you have you seen anything? First of all, is there is it important for people to be together in a space at least at some point in the process? And are there any characteristics about that space that continue, that contribute to higher levels of growth or innovation? And then based off of your answer to that question, or even whatever your answer may be, it, are there ways that companies are able to compensate when they can't be together? Like obviously the, the last couple of years, have you seen uh, companies be able to do these things and, and, and execute some of the strategies you just talked about in more isolated or remote environments? Yeah. Super questions. Um, and I, I start with reflecting on an experience I had as a consultant mm. where I was working on the launch of a really big platform with a client. And uh, part of what we were trying to do in this process was bridge those functional silos to bring something you know relevant and successful and financially viable to market. And one of the frustrations we had as a team early on was the R&D team um, was very highly valued at this organization. And rightly so, they were fantastic. But they were viewed as an asset and it was super secret. And they were in this part of the building with a series of locked doors. And if you weren't mm-hmm. in R&D, you couldn't get in. Right. So immediately you had this collaboration challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and so to me, when I think about physical spaces, I will start with that. Like the best innovation comes through collaboration. And so absolutely being physically together at points in the process, it just makes everything easier. Um, and it even makes it easier when you're out learning from consumers, like getting mm-hmm. getting your manufacturing lead 
for her to be in the room behind the, behind the glass with you at a focus group and hearing verbatim what the consumer is saying, she's going to walk away way more committed mm-hmm. to fixing that need, addressing that need and building a process to do that viably than if it's something that she experienced second or third hand. Or if you go into an environment that that either is the consumer environment or the shopper environment or recreates it, a virtual experience, so everyone feels the pain or the exquisiteness of, of the shopper experience, right? Or understands mm-hmm. in a visceral way, like the space that someone has to store whatever it is you're talking about. Like those things stick with people. Right. So I do think there's a big role for the physical environment and for a physical environment to be one that um, it is just one that creates energy, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know from all sorts of culture and leadership development work, you know, light, airflow, um, space to be co- ergonomically comfortable things, places spread out, things to fidget with, like all of those things can help you just be in the mood for creative work and Mm -hmm. collaboration work. There are tools. um, If a space is reconfigurable, Mm -hmm. if you've got whiteboards around you that you can riff on and can capture your thinking and allow people to seamlessly flow without having to stop and interrupt what they're doing, like all of those things make a difference food water mm. plant life it just mm. creates an energy that is really really helpful and openness to encourage spontaneity and connectivity can be great as long as it's balanced with time for reflection because i think as a society and in management teams like a lot of times we undervalue just thinking and setting aside that time and space and there is a need for that particularly when you're working on tough problems. And so just making Mm -hmm. sure that whether it's reconfigurable space or some set aside pods or private rooms or whatever, you can get away and decompress and reflect when you need to, or when you need to crank something out, like you've got to have that flexibility in the space. And to your question about the pandemic, we had to do all sorts of things. Oh, I, I should say one other thing about the physical space. We've invested, at, at, when I was at Kellogg, we invested a lot in, um, I would call it like a hub that gave us just some special tools and, and um, ability to do that kind of play and creation, you know, a culinary environment, an engine room that had all of our manufacturing processes where we could invent and run and trial stuff very, very quickly a design studio where we could make prototypes and said Mm. as a company, you know, on the cutting edge and trying to create the future of food, that was really helpful to have those types of physical spaces. Now, a lot of that we couldn't use or had to use it with new protocols during the pandemic Mm -hmm. um, for safety reasons. Um, And always in a global company like a Kellogg or a Tyson or Coca-Cola, you might need to bridge the physical with the virtual anyway, if you're working Mm -hmm. on a global platform. And so having really excellent um, capability, technology platforms, um, virtual retail environments that you can 
connect people to regardless of location. A lot of the good basics, good audio, good video mm-hmm. to be able to do streaming and, and bring collaborators in because the value of external collaboration in this ecosystem type, type of approach I'm talking about, sometimes people can't come to you, but you really need their input and their participation. And so having ways to do that and to be flexible in a hybrid way for some of those interactions certainly made the difference. And we were able to do some really cool stuff, even in the context of the pandemic, because we had that technology in place. Mm-hmm. And I and, and, and tying back to the, the conversation earlier around diversity and tapping talent pools from, from new areas and locations and new ways of thinking, I think the pandemic has helped in that regard. You know, the, the acceleration and the advancement of technology capabilities or just the utilization mm-hmm. of technology within teams and organizations. And then also this concept of hybrid, you know, you talk about the collaboration and then the reflection and the balance and the back and forth. Uh, I think the hybrid model supports that. Um, I also think that you're, you acknowledge that just because you're in a building doesn't make it a collaborative environment. You know, you had your example with the R&D behind a locked door. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a mistake some, some organizations are making now is saying, all right, well, we're going to bring people back into our old space to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Well, if the space isn't set up as a collaborative environment, you gave a bunch of great examples of how you do that. Um, it's not just a given that collaboration will happen if you bring people back into a building. And then I think the other thing that we've found is that the environment makes a big deal, but only if people are there. So like some companies that we're working with, and even ourselves to some extent, as we do our re-entry program, you know, you may have 10% of your workforce in the, in the building at one time, and it's hard to have the energy and the, and the personal interaction that is necessary for collaboration to work if the building's sparsely populated, even if it's got all the amenities needed for a great collaboration. So uh, lots of new learnings and uh, lots of things we're being able to apply back, but uh, your, your, your advice is, is spot on to what we're hearing and what we're learning and, and, um, and you've given us a lot today. Uh, before we finish off with the last few questions, we talked a little bit about the, um, the idea of servant leadership and how that makes for great um, kind of people-focused innovation and growth. Uh, tell me a little bit about what servant leadership is in your opinion and why you think it's important. Yeah, it, it's something that's very close to my heart. And there's so many great thinkers, writers, speakers on this topic. I you know, I'd say with humility, I'll try to do it justice. Mm-hmm. But to me, the essence of servant leadership is focusing on making the other your team, the other people around you, your stakeholders Mm -hmm. successful. Um, Successful in your common mission, successful in their career aspirations, their personal growth and development, right? If you can approach your role as a leader with that framing, it unlocks a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's particularly important if you are in functional roles, um, but regardless of whether you're running a PL and you technically have the decision authority or not, the more senior you are, the more leading through influence and example is the name of the game, right? Um, and so that's where I think servant leadership really can pay off in spades. Plus, it's just a lot of fun, 
quite mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. to be other focused. And for me, my, you know, my personal mission is unlocking that potential in everyone I work with. Um, and I, I feel if I can succeed in that, I'm leaving an organization much better, you know, when I leave it. And that is success to me at this stage mm-hmm. of my life. Um, so I think there are a few characteristics of servant leadership and Skip Richards says them very eloquently. So I'm going to steal his comments with pride, but you know, the first is really valuing diverse opinions. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean tolerate them, tolerating them. It means like valuing them, seeking them out, um, making that part of your MO, um, cultivating a culture of trust. And, and I think that, you know, they're, Lots of elements of trust. And with my own teams, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. You know, there's credibility. Do you know what you should know and need to know? Are you reliable? Uh, Are you dependable? Do you do what you say on time? Um, Do you take an interest in others? Right? Because if I want you to trust me, you I need to trust you. I need to show that I'm actually interested in you as a human being and, and be vulnerable myself to build that mutual trust. And then recognize that if, if that's a, an additive equation, those elements of trust, you divide it all by whatever level of self-interest you demonstrate in your regular behavior, right? So how do you build the relationships being very purposeful about those elements of trust? so that you can move the relationship forward. I think that the third thing is investing in developing others. And Mm -hmm. that means you have to understand what their goals are, um, which requires you to get to that level of trust where they will reveal, hey, this is my aspiration. This is what I'm working on. This is what success looks like for me so that they can open that opportunity up to you. Um, Fourth is taking a whole person approach. And and recognizing people don't turn off the other parts of their lives when they walk through the door. And as a leader, you got to accept how they show up every day and help deal with whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think the pandemic certainly taught us that at one point on my leadership team, almost every single person on my team had a sick parent or had lost a parent, right? And, and so there's just no way you turn that off just because right. you happen to be in the nine to five part of your day. It's just, it's not possible. Right. Um, a few other things that Skip Richards would say, you, you encourage, you don't do command and control. You try to build that positive momentum through your encouragement. Sell, you don't tell. You think about we and you, not me. So those are all just inherent, like wiring ways that you can put into practice. You think long-term, not Mm. just short-term and you act with humility. If you can bring all those things, it sounds like a tall order, but there are things that we can all work on to show up that way. And when we do, the spirit you build in the team that sends that my leader's got my back, Mm-hmm. they're trying to make me successful and we're going to do all this together. Mm-hmm. People will then run through walls. They'll, they will do everything they can against really hairy, audacious goals because they know they're in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. 
And you know what's interesting about it is it's called servant leadership, but really it, those are things that anyone can apply to their life, right? I mean, yeah. like like th those are those are qualities of just a great teammate. So I think leadership, le you know, leaders have the ability to impact others more significantly, maybe because they're make, calling some of the shots or they're more responsible for that workplace culture we talked about. But I I, I do think whether it's trying to learn these skills or or or, or um, implement these kind of interpersonal capabilities for future leadership. I think it, it would be it would be applicable right away. You know, if you could start bringing yeah. some of that stuff to the table, regardless of your role on the team. Um, yeah, anybody can. Yeah. yeah, to your point, anybody can be a leader. Right, yeah. a leader yeah. is not a yeah. job title. It's how you show up and yeah. the ways you demonstrate it might differ if you're an individual contributor early in your tenure versus mm -hmm. someone who's leading a team of a thousand people. Yep. But anyone can behave this way. Anyone can invest to learn the business so that you show up with credibility. Anyone can take the time to build a relationship. It's just being purposeful about it. And it's relevant, too, because if you can do those things that you just talked about, you're going to be more effective and more successful at everything else that we talked about earlier in the conversation. So uh, really good advice. Thanks. Thank you, Monica. Couple last final questions, and these can be personal or professional. It's up to you. But tell me something you're looking forward to in the last in the next twelve months. Well, on the personal front, this is a year of big transition in the McGurk household. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, transitioning myself professionally. I've got a son who graduated from university, starting his first post collegiate job in just a cool. few weeks. A um, lot of personal changes in the, the household. So I think we're just excited about mm -hmm. all of that coming to life. And then you know, in the world at large, in the food industry, I don't mean to sound flip because the challenges that we have right now between inflation, its impact around uh, food affordability and availability, mm -hmm. energy, and how that flows through the entire food chain, you know, to the farm gate, in transport, in packaging. Those are big, big challenges. I'm encouraged that the dialogue is now starting to bridge things that seem dichotomous. Mm -hmm. it, the fact that we've got, pick your number, call it 20% of households living in a food desert or in food mm -hmm. insecure um mode at the same time when the biggest contributor to landfill waste is wasted food mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and wasted food if it were one if it were a country right if we just took all the wasted food and it made it a country it would be in the top five greenhouse gas contributors right so our food needs our affordability needs our environmental challenges people are starting to talk about it differently Mm. And so I don't know if it will technically be just in the next year. I think it might take a little bit longer than that, but I'm encouraged by how the dialogue is starting to shift. I think we have a window for new solutions to come to the forefront. That could be, you know, regulatory changes. It could be technological adoption and acceleration. But we have this moment, I think, where we could see a lot of change, a lot of positive change if we rise to the occasion. And I know the people in our industry are really passionate 
about these issues. So I'm looking forward to seeing the kinds of things that emerge from it. Cool. Me too. You've given us so many examples of resources and you called out different studies and authors and books, uh, great thinkers. Is there a, is a re, is there a resource that's been you know, particularly valuable to you in your career that you'd recommend to others? Oh gosh, there's so many over so many periods of time. I guess I I go back you know, to people who are interested in servant leadership. Skip Richards' mm-hmm. nine qualities of a servant leader. It's just a great primer on that mm-hmm. topic. Um, Chicksentmihi's flow and the psychology and discovery of invention. If mm-hmm. people want to immerse themselves in that, and it's a really easy read because you can kind of get the overview and then pick your favorite genius basically and then like sure. read about their story um those are some some great ones and um it, another one that i have been reading myself right now I have not finished but i found it really interesting and you don't have to aspire to be a ceo to, to read it is just the um the recent release by a group of McKinsey partners on the mindsets of high-performing CEOs. Mm. Uh, it's just, it's really, really interesting the way they approach the research, you know, data-driven, how they picked high performers out. Um, mm-hmm. And then the conversations they've had about what, what mindsets and then how that translates into different behaviors and practices around things like team building and making you know bold strategic choices and setting high aspirations and things like that it's really really fascinating a lot of it will seem like common sense to people but some of it i think will be very illuminating and certainly all of it was inspiring very cool well three great recommendations final question well i know you're not retiring tomorrow but if you were mentoring someone and let's say you decided to take a completely different role and you wanted to give them one one final piece of advice. What what's uh, one of the top words of wisdom that you leave to uh, uh, someone who is following in your footsteps? Uh, I would say a couple of things. First is um, you are a human being, not a human doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So don't mistake busyness and activity for progress Mm, don't mm -hmm. and and really importantly don't feel guilty about investing in yourself quite the opposite it is one of the most essential things you can do and sometimes it's a hard one lesson for people um Mm. you know particularly as you grow in your leadership profile throughout your career and if you are a, a parent or a caregiver in your home environment, it, it can be really, really easy and almost expected that you put others first all the time. Mm. And forget about the fact that you can't keep going if your tank is not full. What fills your tank is gonna be different for everyone, mm. right? It could be um, saving some time, 30 minutes to read and decompress with a really juicy novel before you go to bed it could be that 45 minute run every morning it could be taking your vacations it could be being home for family dinner it it doesn't matter it's different for everyone but being purposeful about it Mm 
not only helps you be healthy and makes for a long life, it's going to make you a better leader because mm-hmm. you, you will be refreshed and energized and have more perspective. You will be able to take the ups and downs that are natural in any exciting career and any exciting life mm-hmm. in stride, right? Because you are more resilient and you know, you, you know that you can get through those things. You'll have your perspective in place. So that would be my number one piece of advice. Um, I, I think the other thing is just to embrace feedback as a gift and recognize that Failure is not failure, it's learning. Mm-hmm. It might be packaged up in a painful way sometimes, but mm-hmm. if you never fail, it probably means you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Mm-hmm. If you're not reflecting on, well, what did I learn from this experience, whether it's personal learning or learning about the business, the institution, the process, the function, what have you, it's a wasted opportunity. Um, and again, if if you take it in that spirit instead of a spirit of fear you're you're going to actually stretch yourself to some really amazing things if instead you're afraid because you think that that feedback mechanism that failure means that you've tapped out your potential right if you've got that fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset where you're continuously learning through your experiences you're never going to do justice to what you're mm. capable of, regardless of what field and discipline you're in. Excellent advice. Very relevant to what we talked about before. You've mentioned a number of authors. If you have not considered it, Monica, I think you should consider writing a book. You have so much to offer. Um, but I can't thank you enough for being on the show today and for sharing all of your insight and inspiration with our listeners. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. And I love the thought-provoking questions. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to rate our show. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Work Inspired Podcast so that you don't miss any of the incredible guests we have planned for upcoming episodes. We'll continue to find the best and brightest minds in business so that you can learn, grow, and succeed, and so that we can all work inspired. Work Inspired is brought to you by BOS, a leader in commercial working environments and a Hayworth best-in-class dealership. Experience our 360 approach and discover the team, tools, and techniques required to navigate the complexity of your next workspace at BOS.com. If you have ideas, feedback, or would like to be featured on our show, please email podcast at BOS.com. Thank you for listening. This has been a Workspace Digital production. If you're interested in launching a podcast at your organization, please email info at workspace.digital for a free consultation.